with is I love your book. I love, 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 love the Leon Russell book. Oh, my God. I'm so glad you get I get to talk to you. You talk to so many people. It's so impressive. It's so expansive. It's so generous. I'm learning so much about Russell. I knew he was a big player backstage, but I really didn't know the extent of it. And his tentacles reach everywhere. I went and listened to the Helen Reddy song that he wrote. You know, I mean, just like cool shit like that. (laughs) But I have a very fond memory of seeing Leon Russell at Folsom Stadium in Boulder, Colorado. So I would have been 13. And I sold cokes at this concert. And it was the hippiest, dippiest, grooviest, you know. And he was out there doing (laughs) the Leon Russell live stuff, all that material, and he, you know, he was the grooviest guy alive, and there were these rumors that that gray hair is real, like he's super old, man, he plays with Frank, <laughs> you know, and it, it just was, it was, I have very fond memories of that show and that moment, so I would have been ninth grade, anyway, so just, you know, great subject and great, great stuff, we know you as like lead, lead, how do you call yourself, lead singer, songwriter, guitarist for... Buffalo Tom, and you guys have reunion gigs and Rolling Stone gigs all over the place now. Your Instagram is full of, like, these gnarly Rolling Stone licks. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's what the... That's, I was going to say, that's with a, a side band, but yeah, I mean, you know, Buffalo Tom has been playing a lot of those songs for for fun for all these years, but yeah, yeah, I mean, one of the founding three of Buffalo Tom, and we never really broke up per se. I mean, we took a, we, t- we took long breaks from each other, including uh-huh. through this pandemic, but, um, yeah, we're working on new material now. Really? Oh, fantastic. Yeah. That's wild. I love Yeah, we're this. over with, I... uh, we're over with Dave Minahan at, at, Wool- at Woolly uh, Mammoth Studios. Yeah. There's an old name, Dave Minahan. There you go. Jeez. I just love how the old, I love how, it's just progressed so far beyond what anybody could have possibly thought. I mean, it was unthinkable, right, in 1988 that we would yes. be here today. And yeah, and in fact, still, and the story spins out in so many interesting ways. Yeah, in fact, I, when you brought up that rat show, and you said I'm not sure who else was on the bill, one of the bills we played on in those earliest of days, and it might have been that one, was opening for Soundgarden at the Rat. <laughs> Which is crazy to think of, you know. I remember meeting those guys at the Rat. Yeah, they were young, you hungry, and and um, yeah, very uh, very ambitious, and really happy to meet a journalist. <laughs> not, a lot of, not a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, so you so Buffalo Tom, give us like a give us like a capsule career of the Buffalo Toms origins and then you know first career stretch and then what you've been doing since and what led you to a book project on leon russell i know you have a couple other books in there yeah sure the thumbnail uh is buffalo tom started uh up at umass amherst in 86 late late 86 and we got going pretty fast i mean i was still at school uh uh tom was still at school the drummer tom mcginnis and chris coburn was just about to graduate i think and we kind of uh, stuck around the area, uh, you know, dragging out our school career as much as possible. But we signed to uh, SST Records, home of back then Soundgarden and Sonic Youth and Who's Could Do and Dinosaur Jr., who were also up at UMass, uh, the right. latter. And it was actually Jay Maskus of Dinosaur Jr., who, we, uh, who was kind of a friend of ours, 
um, who we had played a little bit of music with in, at parties and stuff and said, you know, would you produce us? He, he, he had wanted to kind of start working with other bands a little bit, even back then. So we started at the earliest nascent uh, versions of Fort Apache Studios in uh, the first one, which was in, at, in Roxbury with uh, pretty, pretty soon we had Tim O'Hare, Paul Coldery, and Sean Slade, you know, working on our first couple of records with us. And all those guys went on to great things. And the one unifying, if there were like sort of one unifying element to a lot of the indie bands coming out of Boston, and by the way, there were tons of stuff that was really difficult to play in Boston back then. Right. Even though there were way more clubs, there were even more bands. And uh, one of the unifying elements between, like, let's say, you know, Buffalo Tom throwing muses, Lemonheads, Juliana Hatfield, Blake Babies, etc., Big Dipper, Volcano Sons, was that we all recorded at Fort Apache uh, at least a little bit, or some some of us a, a lot. Anyway, one thing led to another. We were signed to a, 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 some overseas labels as, as well. Soon, mm-hmm. Beggar's Banquet, which is still going strong, they signed us, and they became basically our our label through our whole career, licensing us out to you know different different major labels in the states mm-hmm. and uh, you know nirvana broke and you said you know who knew it would go this far get this far and you know we we didn't really i mean we it was really kind of a a stretch and a goal for us to play at tt the bears never mind headline and in fact i i always said we, we were headlining over in, in london and and in holland before we could get a headlining game. yeah yeah, yeah, and that, that, but that was that was typical for that era. I remember that space really well. Like the Pixies were the Pixies were not on a local label, were they? The Pixies were uh, signed to 4AD, which was under Becker's Banquet, one of Becker's Banquet's you know right. uh, imprints, basically. And, and they like, got like a big yeah, and, or something before. Well, they were big. Yeah, they were big in in the, in the UK. I think first and foremost, you know, they they. Because of the recently uh, departed great friend of ours and, and unif- another unifying element through Beggars, I'm sorry, through Fort Apache, uh, was was Gary Smith, who who uh, basically took took over management of Fort Apache and then took over ownership of it with Billy Bragg and and, and some others. So, uh, but Gary uh, discovered essentially both Throwing Muses and and the Pixies, and produced both of them and got them signed both to. Uh, the 4AD label and brought them over to, so the throwing muses were already, they were already big over there and then the Pixies were opening up for them and then the Pixies exploded to the extent that they switched the, the order of who was headlining on, on that very tour, I think. So it was an exciting time. I mean, for us to just even be part of that whole scene was, was great and, but you know, then, then things like Nirvana started to break, especially Nirvana. I mean, the most big, the biggest example. But you know, look at throwing, uh, sorry, uh, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam also out of out of Seattle and Dinosaur from here and Lemonheads. Everything started to get bigger, you know. And people like that were college radio DJs playing us were now real DJs playing us, or or were at MTV all of a sudden. So the whole field started to change and things became more of a quote-unquote career <laughs> you know and uh it was a it was quite a quite a trajectory and we, we we rode that out until the literally the end of the 90s and then we said okay kids coming we didn't strike it gigantic uh maybe let's peel back a little bit and, and, and get off of this roller coaster that that's the short version and then i got mm-hmm. into writing some books and 
we all did some other things. And yeah, I, I wrote I wrote a couple of books on the Stones, Rolling Stones. One of which was uh, for uh, the, the Thirty Three and a Third series on Exile right. on Main Street, and then another one for their fiftieth anniversary, which was a bit more got, got a bit more notice, I think. Um, great. So talk us through a little bit of those two Stones books, and then how how those lead you to um, Leon Russell. Sure. Yeah. Well, I, I was I was really intrigued. It was the earliest days. I think mine is one of the first. I don't know, easily first ten books. I would think, if not if not uh, something around that, if not if not less, uh, for thirty three and a third back then. That my friend Joe Pernice had done one on um, Meet is Murder, and Joyce Linehan, who still is manager. I, I asked Joyce if um, if they're looking for other ideas and she connected me to David Barker the editor then and yeah. um so I I, started, I mean Exile on Main Street has been my favorite rock and roll record all all of these years right. so I wrote one on that and um I wasn't planning on doing another Stones book but you know a bunch of years later so that was 0405 uh mm-hmm. in about tw- 2012 an agent approached me from the UK and said hey this is their 50th anniversary coming up would you like to I have this idea, and he sort of based it on a revolution in the head. He had McDonald's book about the uh, yeah. Beatles, which, yeah, Great. and I know yeah. you're a huge fan. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and um, that really, I use that sort of as a template. In other words, taking songs and putting them into context of the or the, the history and the bi- weaving the biography of the band throughout, and kind of analyzing the music as well. So right. that was the second one, and from there. Um, an agent in the states uh, really uh, was into that, and we talked. And I, you know, I, I, his name was Peter McGregan. And um, from from about 2013 until 2019, we were sort of casting around for ideas for our next for book. It that song. <laughs> and uh, I had pitched him uh, an idea to do something on Mad Dogs and Englishmen, the, the tour with uh, Joe Cocker, that really broke Leon through to to the public consciousness. And he said it was a bit too small maybe for a full book, but um, I, I don't know how many years later I get an email from him saying, hey, did you – you passed on Leon Russell, right? And I said I did not pass on Leon Russell. <laughs> so uh, the estate – somebody from the estate had connected with him uh, representing uh-huh. Leon's estate, and they were looking for an author to, to write a book on him. So they were very cooperative with me. It's, I guess, sort of authorized, but it's not right. – nobody's, nobody's even read it yet from the uh, – from the estate. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's that's the best kind of authorized thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. So, a couple stones questions. Do you this and this may be in one of your books. So, apologies. But uh, do you have any clue why plundered was left off of exile? Because when that came out on the deluxe version, I was like, this is a massive hit. I can't believe this didn't make the cut. Yeah, I discussed this in that book. I I don't know. I don't know why it was left off. Aside from like why any of their outtakes are left off. It was completely, I'm sorry, I should say it was incomplete. It, it's kind of evident because I've actually been learning it for this Little Stones uh, night that we've been doing, and we, yeah. we played it last month. And I just remember I was riding my in my car, and somebody, maybe Carter Allen or somebody on BCN, if he was still on, played played it. Uh, I just was, I'm like, what is this? It sounds like... It sounds like the new Stones capturing the old Stones somehow because right. Jagger's newer voice. But I just thought, what an amazing song! And it's it's one of my favorite songs of, yeah. of the Stones. Uh, but having learned it, I I think I've picked up that it's basically a loop. You know, it's they found like a short 
ver like a short recording of this groove uh, with maybe one. It's got that one change. It doesn't have a bridge. It doesn't have anything else. And I think they just looped it, and and Mick created a song out of it. Because if you listen to Charlie's drums, they're uncharacteristically uh, kind of the same throughout. Like he, he usually varies patterns, but yes, uh, in this yeah. So it sounds almost like a whole loop that they found, and uh-huh. and then I think somebody maybe Mick Taylor came in and, and overdubbed his solos and stuff. Yeah. Uh, so you think that they they found this fragment and then they remade it and Jagger actually did a new vocal on it? Oh, that's that's certain. Yeah, they 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 found this they, thing that's that was incomplete. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah. if you listen, that's that's definitely Mick now, and uh, there were no. I don't think there were any 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 vocals on that. I mean, there there might have been. You know, typically there would have been a guide vocal, and you could all you can often hear Mick. Uh, his, in, in, like, for example, on probably the loudest version is you, on Angie, you can really hear Mick's ghost vocal in the room while they're recording the basic track. And uh-huh. it's sort of like just ghostly in the background there while he's doing the actual lead. Uh, but I, yeah, you could kind of tell it's Mick's, it's Mick's voice circa 2012. Huh. Um, and yeah, but almost, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that they, I, I didn't, I haven't talked to, uh, the, the song came out as I was almost finishing the book. I haven't talked to Don Was or anybody about it. I, I'd be eager to know the, the background of it, but I, I, yeah. I think it was just a loop. And did Was oversee the deluxe? I can't remember. Did who? Did Don Was supervise that deluxe? Yeah, yeah, he had. He, he was. Yeah, he was working with them very closely throughout that era on newer and 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 that project. Uh, yeah, so he's. I think there's like yeah, there's that video accompanying it. I haven't revisited this in a while, so forgive me my fogginess. But no, 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 that's um, right. as far as I, I as just, I recall, he's he's a thread in that that little mini documentary about that they released with it. And would so would they have brought Mick Taylor back in in 2012 to do a lead on that track? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm almost certain that Mick Taylor came in to to do some overdubs. Unless unless that stuff existed. And they were just jamming, but I, I again, you have to forgive my fogginess. I'm pretty sure, though, either way, they did bring Mick Taylor back in for some for mm-hmm. some of stuff. Because by that point, uh, you know, like I saw them on that 2013 tour, Mick was showing up at, at many dates, including. Oh, he was. Oh, so I don't know this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm out of that loop. But that, so that's interesting. I didn't realize. And he was sitting in. Yeah, you can. He was he, he was uh, very often on uh, Midnight Rambler live. Uh, you can oh. see all these clips on YouTube of him sitting oh, in with them. Okay. Even later, yeah, even later, I think he might have even come. I'm not sure about this. He might have come for the Fonda Theater Sticky Fingers, but I'm, I, I don't know if that's the case. Yeah, but he was so definitely around for the 13th. I term. haven't seen them since uh, 93. <laughs> yeah. They've gotten, um, honestly, they, they got way better in the 2000s than they were in the 90s. The live show was much better. Yeah, yeah. I saw Sullivan Stadium show. I think in '93 that was. I yeah, it was terrific. It was terrific. Yeah, it, yeah it was no, Steel, fascinating. Steel Wheels tour, right? Uh, that was after Steel Wheels. Steel Wheels is '89, and I saw that. Oh, in that's right. Mon- that's right. Yeah. Montreal, and that was a terrific show. I mean, they would, you know, '89. Uh, you know, they were. It was what I remember is they were. You know, Maplethorpe was in the air and everything, and they were doing sympathy for the devil and it was like this wonderful convergence of like how prophetic that whole 
that song was not you know not only yeah. specific to its time but also like still really relevant and then um and i just remember it being very like like it was a huge space but it was very clubby on stage i remember being very impressed with how clubby it was and then um 93 was more you know it was sort of more corporate but um, I remember just thinking, well, that's, you know, that's probably it. You know, like we, like we were all thinking at every phase of the game. <laughs> every, thinking, well, every. Right, you know, because yeah. I saw the Who in 89 at Sullivan Stadium, and I thought, well, I thank God I saw them. You know, it was, I brought very low expectations, and they really delivered. They were wonderful. And I thought, well, that's it, you know. And it's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. Fucking 300 years later, they're still... <laughs> and they're coming back this They're coming back I know. Summer, you know? Days. I know. I know. Two, All right. The, Mick, Mick and Keith are the only original standing. <laughs> I know. I'm real, And I'm really also really offended about how they, for years, they did not let Daryl Jones in the group photos. I just think that's just like, those fucking turds. I just so... Yeah. I mean, I mean, seriously, if you're... You know, if you're going to be like, especially in this era where you're going to be like answering charges, you know, like if you have to discuss race now with this music, which you have to do. But no, we're not going to let Daryl Jones in our photo. Fuck that, man. I'm sorry. I just think that's just, uh, it really makes me, it makes me listen differently. It really does. And, you know, and I, I stuck with him after fucking Altamont. Jesus Christ. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting because even though Ron wasn't a full member of the band for a long time, he was always in the photos from the get-go. So it's interesting, but I think part of the thing, reason they were actually attracted to, to Daryl Jones was not only his pedigree, but his. I, I think they liked the idea of having somebody else. In well, the right. It's like about him. fucking time. Let's get a black yeah. member of the band. Let's make him like the root core of the band. Let's yeah. lock him in with Charlie. And absolutely was like way overdue. But no, yeah. no official group photos. And it's like, oh man, you guys are, you guys really, I mean, I don't know. I, I think that is a, you know, I think that conveys far more than they realize. You know, I hear you. The colonialism, the, just on all the old bullshit. Okay, so yeah, I'm I really curious. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't think, no, no, I think it's, you know, I think it's Churchillian. That's what I think it is. Tell me, what else did you learn? I'm obviously you're you're much closer to the bone than I am on this material. But what else did you learn from that deluxe box set of Exile that that fascinated you? You said it, it happened right after the book came out. Uh, yeah, I'm not so. It, it, was, it was coming around. I actually can't remember if it was coming out. If it came out like it came out as the book was finished up, because I, I think I wrote about Plunged My Soul as the last song of Fifty. I'm I'm sure of it now that I'd say that. Okay. Um, okay. But what reveal? Well, I don't. I don't know that there was much in there that I didn't already know, having written that thirty-three and a book, third book on it. Um, you know, but going back to that, uh, it was. It's first of all, I never agreed with this idea that it's this murky mix and everything. You know, it's. It's. Uh, I think people have have imprecise terms for what they're trying to say. It, it's definitely a murky mood, but the myth yes. of that record always sounded crisp and, and, and great to me. I mean, if yes. you if you if your mind only goes to something like just want to see his face or something, yeah, then it's gonna certainly be murky, but that's by design. Yes. yes. Um but no, I mean I I, I never knew I, I my job in both of those books, but primarily the first one was to convince people that it's 
it's not only the best Stones record as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> and that can be argued to death, but to me it, it, it just encapsulates almost everything up to that point that was great about rock and roll. It, right. it takes the blues, the country, the soul, the gospel, which gospel, brings us over to Leon book, yeah. So that, that's kind of why I was attracted to Leon as a figure, not knowing that much about him either. I, I knew the trajectory, but I, I, I've always been attracted to, even as a little kid, to gospel music and, and, and gospel via, uh, like, you know, Ray Charles and Sam Cooke and Soul and Aretha. That stuff has always really floated in my boat. And I loved that era of rock and roll, that sort of post band post uh, John Wesley Harding back to the roots kind of mood where uh not only had these bands sort of eschewed their psychedelic uh, pretensions but come back to sort of this meat and potatoes thing but specifically with the gospel element and and I I knew that Leon was uh fundamental to that because I yeah. I love that 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 record the Mad Dogs and Englishman record as a as a 12 or 13 year old but it was like, I, I don't think I knew how pivotal he was, of course, launching off of of Aretha and specifically and, and Ray Charles, but bringing that stuff back to rock and roll. So the Stones, that's what I love about Exile as well, yeah. how rooted in the gospel it is. Yeah. Well, and it, it I mean, I I'm, I'm, might get this wrong, but it seems to me like they they dwell in the blues and the country blues as early as Beggar's Banquet and, you know, Love in Vain, and then they, they very tentatively sort of approach gospel as like the last leg of the stool. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they you know, started that, with Salt, uh, salt well, of the Earth has that gospel that's true, thing. Right? Yeah, well, and, and right, Can't Always Get What You Want is pretty gospel. Yeah, yeah but they, they, they didn't, like you said, they didn't throw themselves fully into it. I think they don't, you know, it's like they didn't quite trust themselves as I think they, even back then they had, they, they're such an uninhibited band, the, the kind of band that can write something like Brown Sugar because of Nick's sort of, uh, yeah, right. uh, sort of uh, just his audacity. But even back then, I think they were a little, a little, a little tentative of dipping too far into it or like not knowing maybe exactly how to how to nail it because you have more of a juxtaposition of instead of a gospel choir, you have the London Bach choir on. Right. You can't always get what you want. So I, I think they were playing with all of that. So I, th- I really like this idea about how how detailed the mix is on Exile because I find that that blurry take on it too. Like, I mean, the timbre of Charlie's symbols is always really important to what he's doing. And mm-hmm. I love the way he'll change his – one of the ways he'll change – and like, so he's not just patterns, but like the, he'll just change the position he's hitting the symbol at, and it'll just give it yeah. a new flavor. Um, and that, you know, that's not that's not like something you hear in a murky mix, right? It's not a lo-fi Correct. thing. Like you have to capture that, right? But the other thing that, yeah, the other big switchover that's happened. Well, not switchover, but it's a new accent that they're really bringing to the fore is uh, Ian Stewart and Nicky Hopkins on Exile are just like primary players and some of the great licks on that album especially as you get towards the end are piano licks so it's yeah it is a, it's a guitar dominated record there's no way you can rolling stones and it's not like built around guitar licks but there is this really interesting like it's like the piano is suddenly a co-equal there yeah i mean they, they had been, you, you talk about 
beggars. I mean, they built it. They built sympathy for the devil around. Eventually, you know, I should say they tore it down because you can see the the making of it with that Godard film. The, uh, right. And they subsequently called sympathy for the devil, but uh, before it was called uh, one by one, one by one plus one. I'm sorry. Um, but anyway, you see them. You see this great gift of them of of them going through this creative process and. There is Nikki through the whole thing, sort of quietly leading the way into this like piano samba thing, and it doesn't even have an electric guitar on it until the solo, and that's the only electric guitar on on that recorded version of Sympathy for the Devil. It's it's so driven by piano, and as was, you know, uh, yeah, let's so spend the night together. Yeah, and we love you. I mean, uh, that was Nikki. I mean, and. You know, you talk about the Who. Nikki is all over that Who stuff, like anywhere, any, anyhow, and the Kinks. But they they knew they knew what they had with 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 Nikki, as they did later with Billy Preston, and 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 then and even Leon Russell playing on some stuff. Leon plays on um, he plays a second piano on "Live with Me" on 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 "Let It on Let It Bleed." But to your point, Nikki is probably. Uh, and a record of highlights, he is one of the the great things to listen to, zone in on, uh, starting with something like, uh, well, he, he zooms in on, on Rocks Off, and it, it takes that to another level. But uh, Loving Cup, he's, he begins the song solo, and it's just beautiful. But yeah, I would yeah, say yeah. One, of my, one of my favorite parts is what he does on Ventilator Blues. It's just torrid and, and smoldering. It's great. Interesting. So I... Uh, and this is something I learned from your book: is that Leon plays a second piano and lives with me. Tell us that story. Yeah, so he um, he went over to do his first record, and uh, Leon, it this is uh, so he had he had uh, this is even before the right before the uh, the Mad Dogs and Englishmen tour. He had been a session guy all these years, and then he was he became pretty he became extremely well known, I should say, among especially the British rock. Uh, Illuminati, uh, for his work with Delaney and Bonnie on the right. Except No Substitute record. And, um, I talked to, you know, Clapton and, uh, Elton John and all these people that got turned on to this record and the piano playing and hearing, uh, uh, somebody do this sort of gospel style. And, um, so he goes to, uh, he, he, he hooks up with producer Denny Cordell, who had produced Procol Harum and Moody Blues and Joe Cocker, and he was working with Joe closely. And, uh, and, and Denny takes this guy over to, uh, to London to, to, to work with Glenn Johns at Olympic and record this Leon's first debut record as a, as an artist, as a solo artist. And, it's the the band basically is Clapton, George Harrison, Ringo, Steve Winwood, Bill Wyman, Charlie Watts, uh, <laughs> Chris Staines on it. Uh, I mean, it's madness, right? Like all these guys were like, they had kind of heard about this guy. And Keith and Mick were there for a bit. And they, in fact, run through a, a, an early version of Shine a Light, which later appeared on, on, um, on, on uh, Exile. And, uh, it, it, you can kind of hear Mick feeling his way through this song and, 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 and you could see Leon, you could hear Leon really steering this gospel style that, that, uh, Nikki picked up on. Nikki had already been doing this stuff, Nikki Hopkins, but I mean, he really picked up on what Leon was doing there. Uh-huh. And so 
they're taking the plane back. Uh, so at this point, he had, <laughs> Leon had uh, connected with Chris O'Dell, who is working. She's got a wonderful book out called Miss O'Dell. Um, I, I, I can't. I, I could just talk about her for a long time, but she she was working with at Apple uh, for the Beatles, and she came back with Leon as his, as his, as his new lady friend. And she, they were flying back to um, to L.A., and he's bringing her back, and they couldn't get first class tickets because. The first class tickets were all booked up by the Stones and their entourage. <laughs> and, uh, so, so Charlie and Bill and they came back and said hello, uh, in coach. And, uh, once they got back to LA, the Stones said, Hey, let's get, let's get Leon on this track, on a track or two. And, and in fact, Leon arranged a whole horn section for Live With Me that got, uh, that got jettisoned and they left, uh, they left on Bobby Key's sax. Huh. So, um, Leon is, uh, he can read and write music and he's playing with all these people who basically are, are ear players, right? I mean, he's writing, yeah, he was, def- he, he was definitely an arranger. He himself was, uh, he talks about his session days of being like overestimated for his, for his, he was humble. He, he said, you know, but he was, I think he was also being pragmatic. He's like, I, I can't read, you know, uh, I can't read complicated uh, stuff very, very easily uh-huh. is, is basically uh-huh. what he said. But he could arrange, uh, he did these, uh, I think I used the term gobsmacking <laughs> arrangements, yeah. uh, for if you listen to Echoes by Gene Clark, uh, or all that, all that goofy Gary and the Lewis, Gary Lewis and the Playboy stuff, it's goofy, but it's, it, the arrangements are brilliant pop arrangements. But he, he did like pet sounds like arrangements, uh, at the same time that, that Brian Wilson was doing that kind of stuff, and uh, but yeah, he, he and he was, but yeah, he could. Uh, he wasn't a jam guy either. It's not like he could. It's not like he ever wanted to sit around and jam with people. He was mm-hmm. definitely more of a on the on the arrangement side of the equation. Um, and you you go into a lot of detail. You talk to everybody. It seems like you got to everybody who was close to him or lived with him. His house was sort of like a combination flop pad and studio. And um, that his girlfriends report that he was really pretty moody. That that in retrospect, we call his mood swings uh, pretty manic now. Um, tell us more about yeah. how you learned about that. Yeah, I mean, it goes back. Uh, it goes back pretty far. That almost everybody that I talked to that knew him closely said, you know, nowadays we would call this bipolar that we would call it manic depressive a few years back, whatever it is. And it would be, it would be, it would be like sort of days and days of activity, uh, like manic levels of activity and focus and drive. And then there would be potentially up to maybe a month at a time, uh, where he was, he wouldn't leave a bedroom, you know, um, yeah, uh, he would go into dark periods and, but it, he, it was all, uh, it was mostly internal. Like he, he wasn't the kind of, he, he had, you never hear anybody talk about like temper or rage or, or, or anything that would be sort of external responses. It was just, it was just internal and he had mm-hmm. these sort of demons like a lot of artists do and, you know, without being stereotypical about it. I mean, he, he, he did have some, what, what would often be considered you know, part of that artist temperament. And he did some self-medication. I mean, he wasn't like, he wasn't a bad drug guy for a long period of time. 
I mean, he did the typical let's experiment with LSD, which you know is it's, it's, that's that's to be a separate conversation than people that are self-medicating with with booze or or, or cocaine or whatever else, heroin. Uh, but he did. He did get into uh, you know angel dust, which was quite right, quite a right. strong and destructive drug. Um, right. And you know Jim Keltner talks about that quite a bit in the book. Uh, but yeah, it, um, I think it was difficult on his relationships. And then later, I, I think my big revelation uh, for the book, and, and what I think what will be news to even the the die the die hardiest of uh, Leon fans is that he 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 considered himself to have autism to be somewhere on the spec- spectrum mm. which he kind of figured out later out later on in life after watching a documentary on the subject hmm. um so what was the hardest part of the book to write for you what was the biggest challenge the biggest challenge in the whole process was the editing process because mm-hmm. i i'm sure you could tell just by this conversation I, i'm kind of a long-winded person <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i was uh I mean, like you said, I talked to so many people. It was COVID. Uh, it was during the pandemic, so it was kind of a perfect project to do for me. But it was right. also uh, perfect in terms of accessibility because I, I think, you know, you want to talk to Eric Clapton? He's home. You want to talk to Elton John? He's home. He, he's right. Willie right. Nelson. He's, he's, he's on, Willie Nelson's not on the road again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, these guys wanted to talk about Leon Russell, Rita Coolidge, Claudia Lanier. Uh, great, great opportunities and my great fortune to be able to, to do that and they all had amazing stories like it, it could have just been an oral history and sometimes it verges towards that with the amount yeah, of quotes yeah, yeah. so I, for me the challenge was which of these four stories that Claudia Lanier told me uh, are, are are to be cut you know like um, you know which one sticks and and I'm not a great editor at all I'm not a great proofreader. I'm not. I'm not great at making decisions. So that was the, the greatest challenge for me was was winnowing it down to this gigantic book that it already is. Right. Right. So what is it? I mean, it's long, but tell me how many pages it is. I think it's 535. Right. Before and the, what, did you, what did you turn in? Uh, I, I'd rather not speak of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I know no, that. Was, I know. Yeah, I, 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 had a, I had I had a misunderstanding with my editor, who who is a saint, and he said um, I sat down with him before I read the manuscript. I happened to be in New York, and he's like, "Don't worry, you know, we'll we'll make the choices. Just get me what you've got." And so I got him what I got, and he's like, "This is not a book." <laughs> <laughs> You, I did not. I had no idea you were talking about. I mean, it was something like over, over eleven hundred manuscript uh-huh. pages. Uh-huh. Uh, but I, I, I did not expect that to be the book. I knew it had to cut be cut a lot, right. <laughs> to say the least. Yeah. Um, but I thought he would help me make those choices. Uh, but he, he just did not. I mean, no human has the time to. So, uh, yeah, we, we had another couple of steps before we got down to what we actually worked on. And um, who was the who did you find like the most surprising interview? Eric Clapton was to me. I you know Eric's becomes this sort of thorny public character. He yeah. always maybe was since the 
seventies, let's say. Yeah. When he yeah, when he waded into his own racist tirade, uh, drunken or otherwise. Um and but you know, there's just this social media uh era of of deducing uh I should say reducing people to these kind of cartoonish uh versions of themselves that they that that he does no favors to himself like Van Morrison to kind of uh, you know they're more complicated than their worst moments and I'm not in any way excusing either of them but yeah I went in there with all this you know uh a prejudice for lack of a better word uh, mm-hmm. uh and just preconceptions of like who I thought Eric has become, and you know, I, I, I've gone on this whole journey as a guitar player, starting at like age 12 as a guitar player, to to now about who who Clapton is to just as a musician, mm-hmm. and I find him a fascinating character for a bunch of a bunch of reasons, musical and otherwise. But as an interview, he was just fantastic. Like hmm. his, he he was humble. Uh, he, he told me amazingly detailed stories. Like he, I think he was a diary keeper and I was astonished at his memory and his, you know, we discussed guitars, we discussed his singing, we discussed how he was influenced by, you know, he's the first one to express and acknowledge his influence. It influences, you know, like doing records with J.J. Kale and, and doing and buying and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's just a great music fan. So we had a good long chat, um, as I did with Jim Keltner and, and, and some others who I just thought the whole process. I mean, there was an excuse for me to talk to my record collection, this book. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, yeah. but, um, but, but I would say that Clapton, it's like he didn't want to get me off the phone. You know, it's like I, it's a lot of people are like, okay, are we done here? You know, that's great. Thank you for your time kind of thing. And, but we could have talked for another hour, I think, and just had a good Well, time. no, I believe that he's a real – I think I, I think what you – it's very well said, right? People are more complicated than their worst moments. All of them. No, I would say – I would say – I would say among guitar players, especially the sort of cheekier, uh, more insolent, uh, guitar players, <laughs> and especially during this, like myself, and especially during the social, and especially me, like who grew up in punk rock and, and saw virtuosity, uh, I was, you know, in hindsight, I was threatened by it at a certain point because I couldn't achieve it, right? But when I was coming of age in the late 70s with guitar, it was all about like Van Halen's and Beck's and all these guys and Steve Vai's eventually. And I, I, first of all, I didn't like that stuff. And, um, and and I I was also, yeah, but you know, you've got to contextualize Clapton as a, there's there's just different discussions to have about Clapton. There's, there's the guitar player who, you don't understand. It's like it's like Jeff Beck as well. People are saying, "I don't get Jeff Beck." It's like you don't get Jeff Beck. You have to understand what Jeff Beck was doing in the late '60s, even even though they were they were borrowing heavily from Freddie King or whoever. It was like right. this was like this was <laughs> this was revolution. If not revolutionary, it was extremely innovative. And yes. when they all watched Jimi Hendrix, they were like, "Well, holy shit!" Now it's a whole different thing. So. Right. And, but, you know, but as finished Clapton as a, as a, as a front man, which he never really wanted to be, and I believe right. that. Right. I, I think that's, 
that's the key for me. It's like, this guy plays great on everyone else's records. He should not be making records. I mean, Slowhand, what a boring fucking record. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah, but and, the, the and, and, and him wanting to be, him wanting to be J.J. Kale, it's like, God, there's, you know, one J.J. Kale is almost one. Well, I mean, let's, I mean, let's, let's go back to, let's go back to his first Clapton record, which is basically, as I say in the book, it's basically it's like Clapton. Bunny. It's Delaney and Bunny. He's, he's just playing the part of Delaney. And, right. But it, I think that's fascinating because it's a great record. Yeah, it's a great record, it is, yeah. And it is great with Delaney and Bonnie as the band, and it is a Delaney and Bonnie record, basically. <laughs> and, uh, but then Layla, for me, was his absolute peak. And, it, and it's like such a peak that it's like above everything else, and he's never come anywhere close to that. Then he became, as you right. said, became J.J. Kale, and a, right. and a less interesting version of J.J. Kale. But, you know, right. some good songs in there, but... It's it's interesting to me. I find it very interesting, you know. And then he became well, no, the I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the argument. I think that's a very good pushback. Is that it's really interesting, right? Because here's this guy yeah. with all his facility and all this access, and and you know, you know, celebrity and fame. I mean, it's just freakish how it happens, who it happens to, why it happens, right? And so he finds yeah. himself like. You know, there's graffiti and clapping with God and like, what, you know, what are you supposed to do with that? And finding a way through that and, um, developing a career and a persona. Yeah, I think Layla is freakishly great, but you know, the longer, the longer he keeps making mediocre records, the more freakishly great it gets, right? It's sort of. I yeah, mean, exactly. And. And, and, and yeah, and his, his memoir was. I mean, how much of that is Dwayne too? There's, you know, it's like. It was well, Dwayne. Dwayne played a, a a pivotal part on the record, but it was small. It was really the, it was really again. It was the Derek and the Dominos, which is the core of of Delaney and Bonnie. I mean, you've got Carl Radel, Jim Gordon. I mean, it's just incredible, Whitlock, you know? right? Yeah, and, yeah. Bobby um, Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock really right. is uh, responsible for that, I think. Right now, he's the first to tell you. <laughs> remind me. Um, yes. Well, well, remind me. Whitlock's. What is the Whitlock connection with Russell? I mean, was would it make sense to have Russell on that record, or? Uh, well, Leon was already a star, a big star. That's right. By yeah. the time Derek and the Examiners came out, came came out. I mean, he he was well. Let's say he was on his way to becoming a giant star. So he was, but he was already he was already concentrating on on his own career. I mean, that was they went off after the Mad Dogs and an Englishman tour to do that. He was already his his record was had just come out on the Mad Dogs Englishman tour. So he had a he had put together a band and was out there. But Bobby Whitlock was sort of this youngish guy in comparison to all of them. He had come out from Memphis with uh, Donnie and Bonnie after they were there recording uh, at Stax, and, and Duck Don had introduced them. And so he followed them out to L.A. to become the first and friend, you know, of Donnie and Bonnie. And, and he tells all he, – he's, he, I mean, he's completely unreliable. His facts are a little bit all over the place. Yeah. But, uh, his books are good. He's he's been on YouTube uh, with his wife Coco telling stories for the last few years. Oh no, uh, I don't know about that. I'll have to go look at that. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's a great dive, and he's just speaking off the cuff, and some of it makes no sense. Some of it makes a lot of sense. But yeah, so he but he he was up at Leon's place a lot during those days, and I think he he looked up to Leon. But and, and he, he also takes some credit. He says that Leon. Uh, sort of asked Bobby, asked Bobby uh, himself, as well as Delaney, both of whom had preacher, fire and brimstone preacher fathers, like, uh -huh. uh, how does this stuff work? And, and Leon incorporated that into his act, you know, in the early 70s. It was all about this, yeah. uh, you know, 
uh, as he called it, a uh, an, uh, an artificially induced religious experience. <laughs> right, 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 right. And the we're taking the, the gospel secular thing like to extremes. And my right. my understanding of it was um, that it just he just kind of wore it out, you know, like it just was he was he got to be a one trick pony after a while. I mean, in by '76, like you didn't want to go see Leon because you knew that it was just going to be Jumpin' Jack Flash again and. I mean, he got kind of stale. Is that a misimpression? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few uh, steps there. I mean, he he always, if anything, to a fault, he he switched horses in midstream very fast. Like he first did that Hank Wilson country record in '73, which when was right, which was my first country record. He, that he's one of the big reasons I'm a huge country nut. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. But he 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 risked alienating a lot of his fans, and I think a lot of them were scratching their heads because the next record he puts out is Stop All That Jazz with the Gap Band, which nobody knew. <laughs> he discovered the Gap Band with some friends in, in Tulsa. So he does this very weird record. It's not a very good record, though it has some great highlights. Yeah. In the back. yeah. As a Dylan right, fan, if you, if you know uh, the version of um, the Ballad of Hollis Brown on there is insanely great. It's I, I, I steer you to, to get on onto that right as, as soon as we get off this call. It's like yeah. this churning sort of pre-industrial, it's almost like suicide meets, you know, Giorgio Moroder meets like a chain gang doing just Dylan song, which it's like really a great reading of that like murder ballad, you know? Hmm. But yeah, then, yeah, but I'm, then, mis- I'm mischaracterizing him. It's my own misimpressions. Really. No, no, no. But, but then, but then I'm just saying you missed a few steps because then he goes and does yeah. this comeback record. I felt like it's a comeback record called, uh, Will of the Wisp, which is a really good record. And that's when he, he sort of met Mary, his wife. And, um, I don't know if you've gotten to that part of the book, but then his career, he basically just shoots himself in the foot. He ruins his relationship with Danny Cordell. He does this duet, this, these two duet records with Mary that, that are completely different than anything he's done. They're basically aimed at the AM top 40 of the, of the seventies, which are mm-hmm. lovey dovey songs. No, right. no kick ass gospel piano at all on that. And, uh, or very little, I should say. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, tell me more. So another, so the country record, and he makes it volume two, right? A few years later. So it's yeah, well, a long, a long time later. Um, I think a long time two comes later. out. Yeah, I think two comes out in the eighties, and three. There was a third version that comes out yeah. in the nineties. And by the time the third one came out, it was a real breath of fresh air because he had been in one man band, self released CDs territory, which was. You know, it's really hard to find anything to like on 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 many of what his stalwart bass player calls the merch records. Like just the stuff he would have <laughs> on the tables and you know right. at Johnny D's oh, or something. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but that and they're then, all they're all worthwhile. So interesting. Talk to me more about Mark Benno because another phase of the Russell crew that I really love is the Asylum Choir stuff. And what are the two records? Three records? But some of the productions uh, on those early things are. And and what happened to Mark Benno? And you know what what created that duo? And tell us more about yeah. That. So Mark Mark Benno was part. So you know back before Leon, these, these are the original Leon as artist records because everything else he had been doing was sideman and arrangement stuff. And he was basically uh, Leon was Snuff Garrett's uh, right hand man. He was his producer basically. I mean the arranger. So Snuff was like an old school record guy. 
uh, and, and they had formed this partnership. He had done so much for Snuff, uh, but he was really getting sick of being under Snuff Garrett's wing and doing kind of lightweight pop stuff like Gary Lewis and the Playboys. But one of the projects that came to Snuff was this band, this garage band out of Dallas, Texas called uh, the um, – I mean, I just, I just, I just completely uh, lost my train of thought there. <laughs> It'll come back to me. But um, Mark Benno was in this band. And uh, they come out to L.A. Well, first they come. Those guys came to Dallas to produce a couple singles on them, and then uh, eventually, uh, I think they were the Outcasts, something like that. I have to. It'll, it'll, it's in the book. Um, they, uh, yeah, it's the Outcasts. I think. So they 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 come to L.A. Mark Benno basically just goes to to find Leon, and <laughs> he just ends up at his house, and uh, he, he he ends up living in Leon's house for a while before Leon even knew he was there. <laughs> And, uh, and, but, but the guy ingratiates himself because Leon was already impressed with, with Mark as a, as a, as a singer and songwriter in this band that he had been producing. So Leon's like, you're tired. Yeah, who, who are you? What are you doing here? What do you want to do? He's like, well, I want to, you know, I want to do a record with you. I want to write, write some songs. He goes, what do you got? He's like, yeah, it's as simple as that. So they formed this sort of partnership. Uh, it's really more of like Mark Benno is this, is this muse for Leon and really encouraged him. And Leon was kind of insecure uh, all through his career, especially later, in fact. Huh. But back then, he was like, uh, this guy was building him up and, and, and said, you know, you're as good as Dylan, you're as good as the Stones. You can do your own record, you know. And Leon had a world-class studio built into his house, uh, designed by Bones Howe, who had produced for uh, and, and recorded for Lou Adler and, and all the Fifth Dimension stuff and Janet Dean. So Bones House designed this great studio in Leon's house. So they just started recording there, and, and they reco- ended up recording two records called uh, The Asylum Choir and looking to the uh, different, different titles, but that was the name of the project. And that was sort of the 67, 68, 60, yeah, 68 into 60, yeah, yeah 67 to 68, really. And Leon was doing all kinds of cool psychedelic projects, including uh, Daughters of Albion, which is a really great record, another uh, duo. And, uh, yeah, that was sort of that dovetailed into into Delaney and Bonnie and beyond. And then Benno, uh, Benno became a sideman uh, in, in L.A. He plays on L.A. Woman by the Doors. Huh. And, he, yeah, and then he, he did some touring with, like, uh, with Rita Coolidge, Leon's ex, and some other people. Um, you see him, if you look at, you know, his all music credits or whatever, you'll see a bunch of stuff. But then he went back to Texas and he formed, uh, I think it was the Nightcrawlers band, and, and in fact had uh, a young Stevie Ray Vaughan in his band for, for a bit before Stevie Ray went on to great things. Oh, my. Yeah, Benno is like a real blues hound. I mean, he tracked down, he was like looking for, for Lightning Hopkins at one point. And, uh, he's a fascinating guy as well. His, his books are really fun. Huh. So he has books? A book, I should say. I think it's, I think there's different versions of the same book, the same way oh, that uh, Andrew Lou Goldham has different versions of his book. Oldham's God, I love those Oldham books. Oh my God, those are the great yeah. lost books, man. That's where all that's where it all is. So Benno, yep. um uh Hoop did they did they all play all the instruments on those asylum choir things or did they just like have Yeah, I mean Leon Leon played like 90% of it. In fact, he was already coming up with uh, versions of drum machines back then or ways to loop percussion and and do that stuff. He was a a real innovator to the extent that he actually 
was the the the, the guiding force between Ro- I should say uh, below Roger behind is what I'm looking for the preposition. He was the driving force behind uh, Roger Lynn's Lynn drum machine in the in the late 70s when Leon had the had the prototype that uh, he bought from Roger. Roger had been in his band and had been an engineer for him. And so uh, he, um, he he he's the inspiration for that drum machine. I talked to Roger Lynn, who pays Leon a lot of credit for coming up with that idea, a programmable drum machine, yeah. And, and did you uh, read yeah. the Dillatine book last year, the, the Dan Charnas book on Jay Diller? No. What's that book? Oh, oh you're going to love this. Uh, well, it's called Dillatine, and it was this – this Detroit beat maker and very influential rap guy who's, I can't remember the name of his band, but he did mostly like created beats and stuff and produced a lot. He has one record called Donut and um, Questlove was his big champion, but he died of a rare blood disease in like 2006 at age 30, you know, four, something really young. Mm. Um, But this legacy of, how he gets hold of these early drum machines and starts tweaking their settings and figuring out how to delay the beat by literally microseconds and just making it, you know, just turning it into like not human sounding, but definitely not machine sounding. Right. 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 It's not rigid, but it's, it's more fluid and just being vastly influential. And Questlove is woven throughout this book about how, and Questlove, you can, you know, Questlove will play, like, there's videos of Questlove saying, here's how I used to play, and here's how I play now, and it's like, whoa, it's like his bass drum is completely disassociated from his snare. It's uh, unbelievable. Um, yeah. And it's, um, it was a best-selling book last year, and it's a magnificent opus. I learned so much about rap. It's like, and they create tracks very differently, um, and I'm just like a, a Stone Cold Dilla fan now. You'll, it's it's very cool. It's very cool. You will love this book, and it's got like, next on my list. It's, it's yeah. got musicology. It's like he's he's charts out like how to program these machines in these graphs. It's amazing. Um, wow. Um, yeah. Uh, so there's a, there's a link because um, he's working. With, I mean, and I can't even name the machines to you. I'm not that much of a gearhead, but he's working with like the very basic early raw machines, and then figuring out how to hack them and run it through his laptop and be like just incredibly innovative with, with how, what the machine can do. And it's, it's just completely uh, changed, changed all the beats and rap. And he has all these great examples about like, so right after the first verse, you're hearing this. And then when the bridge hits, you start to hear this, that's Dilla. And it's, no, that's like, it's just, it's, all of a sudden it's just like, Oh, it really snaps everything into focus. So, um, All right, I'll keep an eye out for that. that was yeah, check that eye. out. I'll send you a link to that. Um, right. What else should we talk about? What do you wish a journalist would ask you about on this book? What are you What are you really dying to talk about um, as you're doing interviews for this book? What's the timetable, too? When does it come out? It's coming out March, March 14th. Okay. Um, Mojo's got a – I just got a, I just got sent that it's going to be an eight-page spread in Mojo, which I'm thrilled nice. about. Yeah, that's the Bible for this kind of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I usually, I mean, so much is in the book itself. I, I, I'm not sure if, um, I mean, it, you know, I'm just, gl- I, I'm just glad you're highlighting the, the amount of, uh, 
research that's been put into it and the amount of people I've talked to. I mean, 130-something, 137, yeah. I think, in interviews. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, navigating the family stuff was a bit difficult, uh, mm. talking to Hulu and, 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 and so-and-so saying, I don't want you talking to so-and-so. And, right, um, right, that's, right. That's all interesting. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's really nothing that jumps to mind. Again, I just love the book. I mean, it's just such a, a gorgeous x-ray of the scene and its, you know, its many sort of backstage happenings that are really essential to to making sense of the surface is getting, you know, peeling back the layer a little bit and seeing how the, how these musicians actually work or what the network was like. I don't know. I just found that all really fascinating. And no, thank you. I really, I'm glad. really yeah, appreciate sure. all the work you put into this. It just is, um, you know, I don't know. It's really, it, 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 we're in a really golden phase for music books right now. Bill of time. Yeah. The Chuck, the Chuck Berry bio. Have you seen that? No. Um, oh, you got to run, get that. Oh my God, that's such a great book. And you got to get uh, Lenny Kay's book too. Have you seen Lenny Kay's book? Which one? No, I don't. It's think called so. Lightning Striking. Ten transformative right, no. moments in rock and roll. Oh we, yeah, yeah, I've heard about this. Yeah, that's great. Oh, it's going to be like it's going to be the new history of rock and roll. I mean, it's just like it's soup to nuts, and it's got all these strikingly. I mean, it's really, it's really helping us rethink uh, history of rock and roll right from the inside. He's, he's participant, observer. I mean, he's, I don't know, I, I just love this book so much. So anyway, you're in this, we're in this great moment for books. So congratulations. Oh, thank you. Yeah, 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 yeah.